guys. Welcome back to Keeping It OD podcast. Happy Monday and Happy New Year. I hope you all had a great holiday and a start to your new year. And we're kicking off the new year with a brand new series called A Day in the Life of Blank. So in this series, I'll be interviewing optometrists in various modes of practice, as well as optometry students from various optometry programs to bring you their experiences so you can get a glimpse of what a day in their lives look like. Starting off this series with Dr. Janet Pepper. She's a pediatric optometrist and also a vision therapist. Dr. Pepper is an associate professor at SCO. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Truman State University. She then earned her doctor of optometry degree from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And in 2004, Dr. Pepper completed a residency in pediatric optometry at SCO. She was then appointed to the faculty later that same year. Currently, she teaches the pediatric optometry and vision therapy labs. And in July of 2020, Dr. Pepper was named Coordinator of Student Diversity and Inclusion at SCO. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode and get to know Dr. Pepper a little bit more. Dr. Pepper, thank you for being a guest on Keeping It OD today. Well, thank you for having me, Karen. I'm um, happy to be here. So this episode is going to be split into four different segments. The first segment is questions about your pre-optometry background and journey. So just to start off, what made you pursue a career in optometry? Um, When I was younger, my father would always ask me what I wanted to do. So this was starting in kindergarten, and um, I would just say anything, just whatever came off of the top of my head. And he would do this every year. So it wasn't a one-time thing. So he always had us, me, me and my sister, thinking about what we wanted to do when we grew up. And when I went to my optometrist for the um, first time, I said I wanted to do what he did, and that was at the age of 11. So I've wanted to be an optometrist since I was 11 years old. Awesome. Um, So we shared a little bit about you with the listeners. So what made you choose the major that you did, psychology? And do you recommend any specific major? Do you think choosing that helped you in preparation for the OET or optometry school? And what would be your tips if someone is um, wondering what major to go into? Okay. So my, so I told you that I wanted to be an optometrist when I was 11, right? And I held that with me throughout um, middle school and high school. Well, when I got to undergrad, I got scared. And I said, you know what? Maybe I can't be a doctor. Maybe I need to pull back. So I was undecided until I couldn't be undecided anymore. And I was still scared to jump right in to say, I want to be an optometrist. So um, I was like, you know what? I like psychology. Let's do psychology. So I um, did psychology thinking as a major, thinking I would go and be a clinical psychologist. And I applied to a program that was called the Ronald E. McNair program. And it um, allowed me to um, dive into doctoral programs and there were other students who were like me who were underrepresented minorities in that. And once I saw that they were pursuing their career goals of dentistry and medicine and pharmacy and 
uh, doctoral PhD programs and stuff like that. Then I decided I would dive into optometry. So I say all of that to say I didn't pick psychology to be an optometrist. I picked psychology because I was interested in the subject and it was safe. But then once I got into that other post-baccalaureate, or not post-baccalaureate program, when I got into that TRIO program, the Ronald E. McNair program, I realized that what was in my heart was an optometry and I needed to pursue it. So I kept with my major because again, I was undecided until I couldn't be, I had to decide something. I had too many credit hours. So because I chose psychology and started building my credit hours for a degree, I wasn't going to go back and get something else. I just added on my uh, science prereqs to that so that I could graduate in a timely fashion. So that's why I chose psychology. I still like it, to be honest with you. Um, I'm very fascinated in student well-being and um, um, shoot, faculty and staff well-being, to be honest with you. Um, so uh, mental health is an interest of mine and um, um, preventing burnout is an interest of mine. So um, I still have those undercurrents in me. I didn't just choose it just to do anything, but I chose it because it was something I was interested in, but I was able to still do vision stuff inside of it because there's vision and perception, things like that in psychology that made my interest go even higher into that field. Um, would I recommend any specific major? I'm gonna be honest with you, I would not. I would tell you to do what you have a heart for in undergrad. Like if you're interested in a math, then be a math major. If you're interested in art, be an art major. Just as long as you get your prerequisite courses, you're, you're golden for optometry school. Awesome. So we talked about classes and prerequisites for optometry school, but what other extracurricular activities or clubs were you involved in? I know you've mentioned it a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but was there anything else that you wanted to share or um, anything that you recommend pre-optometry students to kind of dive into and maybe explore during their time in undergrad? Well, I'll tell you this, um, in undergrad, you know, it's definitely a time to explore, like you said, Karen. Um, I would say if something piques your interest, join, join the club, join the meeting, see if you like it. Um, when I first got to undergrad, I was in a gospel choir. I can't sing, but I was in that choir. <laughs> but it was good to meet people and stuff. Um, I told you about the Ronald E. McNair program that I was a part of. I will tell you that the um, organization that or I will say this, I was a tutor in undergrad as well. So I enjoyed doing that for a work study position. Um, but then the organization that really um, helped me was my sorority. I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated and the camaraderie, the leadership skills, the teamwork, the business, um, um, or I'll say this, the uh, meeting acumen, meaning how to run a meeting and all this other stuff. Um, it was so invaluable and um, I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, I think that just being involved in something other than your um, academic studies just helps you to remain balanced because when you go to undergrad, you're kind of thrown into um, a heightened level of academic rigor that was not high school, okay? And you have to kind of find your way and find your balance. And so when you get into an organization that 
makes it feel like it's your tribe. And I say that in air quotes, it kind of gives you a um, place to be you outside of the classroom. And I think that's really important to uh, a student to make sure that they are balanced and they are um, um, able to perform at their highest self in the classroom. Yeah, and I also think it helps you kind of develop yourself because once you are in college, sometimes like once you are out of college, you're a completely different person. 180 degrees, I can definitely say. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, did you while you were in undergrad, did you shadow or work um, in an optometry setting? Um, when I was in undergrad, I didn't. I tried to shadow. But I went to undergrad in a real small town, just 17,000 people. And so it wasn't very many optometrists to shadow. And the ones I asked had already had students shadowing them. So I was like, well, I can't shadow in undergrad, but I was fortunate enough to shadow in my hometown with the doctor that I told you that I wanted to be like. Mm-hmm. He allowed me to come back and shadow with him. And that was, that was, that was great. That's awesome. Alrighty, so uh, we're going to move on to our next segment of the episode, which is your optometry school experience. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the best four years of your life. <laughs> um, so after undergrad and, you know, the shadowing that you did, how did you choose your optometry school? Well, let me tell you, sweetie. What I did was, whichever school let me in. <laughs> If you let me in, I was going. I applied to about five schools. And because this was my dream, I just wanted a foot in the door to pursue my dream. So it really wasn't until I started getting multiple acceptances that I was like, hmm, I need to think about where I really want to go, you know? So um, one of the things I did how I chose my optometry school, I actually visited the optometry school either before I applied or when I was invited for an interview. And in doing that, it gave me a good sense of the atmosphere of the optometry school. Do I see myself walking in these halls? Do I feel welcome here? Um, Can I see myself becoming a professional here? And do I um, sense that I will be supported in my endeavors? Okay, so those were my big, um, my big um, check boxes or what have you. Um, I actually had my parents with me. So my mom and my dad traveled to each school with me as well. Um, Some of the schools, it might have been just one parent, but at least one of the parents was there. And um, the only reason looking back at it, I knew that my parents did that because they wanted to be involved. But looking back at it, I knew that they had a set of eyes that I didn't have and they were able to see things that I couldn't see. What I mean by that is this, I was just looking at, I want to get in, I want to be an optometrist, whatever that takes. They were looking at, well, my daughter, I know my daughter, how will she succeed here? Will she fit in here? Will, um, is this a good atmosphere for her? And so when, after we had either the interview or the visit, we would sit in the car and just talk about, okay, we like this, we like this, we didn't like this, what you thought about this. And so my mother was more so on the feeling, if she got a good feeling or if she didn't get a good feeling about it or what have you. So um, that um, 
those types of um, interactions with my parents and then with myself and then with the school, it helped me to decide where I fit in. Now, I'm going to tell you what it all boiled down to. I'm from Southern Illinois, which is about two and a half hours south of St. Louis, okay? So I live further away from Chicago than I do St. Louis. And um, my undergrad was in Missouri, Northeast Missouri. I went to Truman State University. So a lot of my friends that I had developed those tight relationships in undergrad lived in St. Louis. The other aspect of it was my sister who was three years younger than me was already an undergrad in St. Louis. So the location of the University of Missouri St. Louis College of Optometry was so ideal because I already had friends there. I could live with my sister and they were super friendly. And I was like, you know what? They have a small class size. I'm from a small town. My undergrad was small. I see myself here. So that's, and then it gave me money. <laughs> and that's always a benefit. <laughs> but the, when I say that, they gave me a scholarship. Mm -hmm. So with all of those things added up, that's why I chose um, AMSO. Awesome. Um, now, this is not a question that's on here, but I feel the need to ask. So mm -hmm. a lot of the interviews are, or most of them now are conducted virtually. So most students or um, applicants are not able to visit the campus in person. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend that they do um, in order to make an informed decision? We made a whole episode about that, but I want to hear your input, what you think would um, help them make an informed decision. That's a very good question, and it's different on online. So instead of being able to come on the campus and get the feel for it, you have to um, heighten your awareness in the um, uh, virtual interactions, okay? What feeling do you get when you interact with this person? Or when you send a correspondence to that particular school, are they prompt or are they a little lagging in how they send the information? Um, are they, when you um, present information or a question, how are they responding to it? Meaning they may not have the answer, but are they willing to bend or or not being but willing to work at it or willing to figure out um, to be flexible in that response, that sort of thing. So um, you have to look at other variables that don't give you the atmosphere that I was talking about when I was going through the process. But um, the other key variables that I mentioned of looking at how they correspond with you, um, how is the virtual um, connection, um, when I say virtual connection, I'm not talking about Wi-Fi. I'm talking about when you are interacting with them. Do you feel welcome, even though it's a virtual interaction? Those are the sorts of things you want to keep in mind. Awesome. So you mentioned that you went to a small undergrad and also had a small class size, but I'm pretty sure that there was a transition from undergrad to optometry school. What was the hardest transition from undergrad to optometry school for you? The hardest transition for me was realizing that optometry school was an undergrad 2.0. So um, when you do well in undergrad or whatever, or when you do well in school period, it's easy to think that when you get to optometry school, you're just going to do well because that's just what you do. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen that way, but 
again, remember, I was a psych major, so I didn't have like four science classes in undergrad with labs. So when I got to optometry school and I had 23 classes, science classes with labs, 23 hours, excuse me, 23 hours of science classes with labs, I had to, it took me aback a little bit, okay? And um, even though um, I, um, um, we, I still hung out with my classmates and stuff, I had to realize that this is a whole nother ball game. <laughs> and if I'm not careful, this will challenge me um, to the point where I will feel like I can't do it. So I have to stay on top of things. Awesome. So do you, did you really struggle with the amount of material presented or the actual material, would you say? It was the amount. The classes individually were not that difficult, um, but it was the amount of material coming at you. And this is the thing. I am a slow studier. It takes me a while. <laughs> so I had to figure out how much time I actually needed to put towards this class, to put towards that class. Um, I was really good in anatomy and physiology stuff, but I wasn't as strong in optics. So I had to um, balance that and figure out, even though anatomy and physiology had a lot of credit hours, I was pretty good at that. So I didn't have to put as much energy into it. But optics, I needed to get them formulas right. So it was um, just a self-awareness exploration. So I will tell you, if you, like you said, when you start undergrad, it's a development journey. Optometry school, you still develop it. <laughs> well, that's good to keep in mind. Um, mm -hmm. So did you always wanted to specialize um, in pediatrics um, and vision therapy? And if not, when did you decide that this is what you wanted to do? So Karen, what happened to me was I wanted to be my hometown optometrist. So when I got into optometry school, I said I was going to come back home and do what he did. That, that was the only thing in my mind, you know. And what happened was during third year, we started seeing patients, which was fantastic. And um, there was a optometrist from Wichita, Kansas that came and talked to our class about what he did. And his name was Dr. Pat Perot. And he was a pediatric optometrist and he's told us that he had a million dollar practice and he worked part time just seeing Pete's patients. And I said, huh, I want to do <laughs> what he just is doing. <laughs> I said, you can do that? But of course, you know, I just heard that tidbit. He did a lot of work on the front end to get to that point. He had associates. He had been in business for a while. He had practice management down to a T. So there was so much more to that than, you know, what he said. But what I heard as a third year student was that you can do peds part-time, work three days a week, and you can be a millionaire. And what was interesting was in my third year, we saw pediatric patients. I was good with the kids, but I didn't know what I was doing. Meaning I didn't feel, I didn't feel confident in the procedures and stuff. 
And so knowing that I, I could build the rapport with kids, that all I really needed was the confidence boost or what have you, I said, you know what? I'm gonna take an externship during my fourth year in, with the practice that does pediatrics, but then also I think I wanna be the peds person in some sort of practice somewhere because with my, with my classmates, nobody wanted to do peds. Everybody was like, you can have those kids, give me the adults, give me the, the, uh, the VA hospital, what have you. I, I don't want to do anything with kids. So I thought, saw it as a niche where if there's not a lot of people doing it, I will be in high demand. So that was my rationale. Yeah. Um, so what is your advice to current optometry students that are interested in applying for residency programs, whether that being exploring what they should um, get, get into or how to make sure they're competitive enough to get into the residency program of their choosing? Okay, so there's two different questions in there. I'm gonna answer the first one first and then I want you to remind me about how to be competitive for a residency program, okay? Um, advice I would give students who are interested in doing an, a residency, I would say when you're, it's, you come in thinking about things that you're interested in, right? And the more that you shadow, the better exposure you get into those different areas if you shadow different modalities, okay? So that's, that's one area. Um, once you get into optometry school and you start to get into the work, you see which areas in optometry resonate with you, okay? Now, when they're resonating with you in the didactic portion, it's different when they resonate with you in the clinical portion, okay? Because sometimes some things you think didactically, oh, I really love this stuff. You get in the clinic and do it, and you're like, no, nah, that ain't for me. So what I would encourage students to do is when they're in the different uh, service areas in optometry schools, so when I say service areas, I mean when they're in the primary care clinic or when they're in the contact lens clinic or when they're in the low vision clinic, see what it feels like. Meaning, do you get excited about when you help a patient in that particular clinic? Um, do you want to learn more about that particular area outside of um, clinic, even though you don't have a class in that particular area? You kind of see what I'm saying? Meaning um, you might have already had that class previously, but when you go to that particular clinic, let's say contact lens clinic, um, you've already had your contact lens courses, but when you go to the contact lens clinic as a um, student, you're like, you know what, let me look up this a little bit more. Or let me figure out more about this. My patient um, had this stuff and I want to know more about this particular lens or that particular lens. That kind of helps you to see, okay, this is where I'm interested. And when you figure out which things that you're interested in, then with your residency program, you can decide if you want to do a residency all in that particular area or if you wanna do a primary care residency that allows you to um, have um, interest or have um, um, patients that are more in line with that particular um, specialty in optometry. You kind of get what I'm saying there. So you can have a, um, you can ask about when you apply to the primary care residency, um, can I, um, cater the program to my interests so oh, I know that was an option yes it's absolutely an option so when i became a peds resident um i had a day with an ophthalmologist or what have you and um i was more interested in vision therapy not so much 
strap surgery. But if I wanted to, I could have stayed, had a couple of days with him the rest of my residency if I wanted to um, um, design my residency that way. Now, not all residency programs would allow you to do that. So you have to do your research, but some residency programs will allow you to cater it to your interests. Awesome. Um, so the next part of the question, uh, I told you I'd remind you, um, how to make sure that you are on top of things to become competitive comes time applying for residency. Mm -hmm. You know, residency is so interesting because every year is different, meaning some years there are more residents, more applications than others. And so it just, um, to make yourself competitive, one, have a competitive GPA, two, pass boards, but then three, show that you have interest in that area. What does that mean? It means, um, so let's, let's say contact lens. If you're interested in contact lenses or what have you, talk with your contact lens uh, faculty and see if you can help um, write, write a journal article with them or do a research project with them or um, talk on um, um, contact, um, contact lenses at the um, Contact Lens Society or whatever. Like something that gets you involved in that particular specialty, that sets you apart. Another thing you can do is just research the people who are prominent in that particular specialty, read their work, and then reach out to them and talk to them about what they did and why they did it and things of that nature. When you show that type of interest and you put that on your residency application, it um, says that you're not just um, interested or what have you because you say you're interested, but your actions that you've done thus far lines up with that and you have people that can vouch for your actions in that, in that sort of way. Kind of see what I'm saying there? Absolutely. Alrighty, so we're moving on to our third segment of this episode, and um, this is going to dive into your clinical days, what patients you see. Um, but the first question here, I know most residency programs are usually a year. How long was your training to become a pediatric optometrist? So I did my residency training at Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee. So um, it took a year right at 12 months. I started in July and I ended it in June of the following year. Awesome. So what does a typical day look like um, at your clinic? Okay, so as a um, resident or as a faculty member? As a faculty member. Okay, got you. So in Pete's clinic, um, it's broken up into the morning session and the afternoon session and before um, you, I would say I would see anywhere between um, eight to 10 patients in the morning and in the afternoon, it could be anywhere from 10 to 13 patients in the afternoon. Awesome. And yeah, so, and the way it's set up, we're set up in suites. So I have four students that uh, report to me and those are the same four students that will see those patients. And then I will um, follow up and, um, collaborate with them to in the care of the patient. Awesome. So what cases do you typically treat in um, the PEDS clinic? Lately, it's been a lot of binocular vision issues. So eye strain, focusing issues, um, 
eye movement issues, so ocular motility issues. But a big one, y'all, is that eye strain, especially for my my um, low farsighted patients, my low hyperopic patients before where they could just get away with not having correction because their visual demands, even though they had visual demands when they were in school, it wasn't as demanding, but being on in being on the computer for virtual learning for so many hours in a day now, it's it's definitely taking a toll. So the one of the the number one thing is um, um, eye strain, binocular vision issues. Um, so I'm sure you have a ton of interesting cases that you've encountered throughout your years of practice. Um, is there a memorable case that you um, want to share with us? A case that just resonates with you? So I have several of those, <laughs> um, but I will say one of the cases that really resonates with me where I was like, man, we're changing lives here. I had a seven year old boy who had a um, eye turn, meaning one of his eyes turned in. He had esotropia and we decided to put him in vision therapy and because the mother did not want to do surgery. And so we put him in vision therapy. And let me tell you, this little boy was all over the place. He was definitely a hyperactive. When I say hyperactive, he didn't have like ADHD or anything. He was just, you know, wanted to just do a whole bunch of stuff. And so when we started to do eye activities with him and he could um, get, go straight for a while and then he wouldn't be straight. And he could go straight for a while and then he wouldn't go straight. So there was one point where he got it, meaning that he realized he controlled his eyes, and when his eyes feel like this, it's turned in, and when his eyes feel like that, they're straight, and the mother came in the next, um, at the next session, and she was like, I don't know what happened, but he's straight. I said, he's straight? She was like, he is straight. I said, what do you mean his eyes are straight? She was like, he just has his eyes straight now, so I went and talked to him, and I said, hey, bud, um, how are you getting your eyes straight? He was like, well, I just know now what it feels like to have my eyes straight and what it feels like to have my eyes turn. And he, would show, he was showing me when it was straight and then he would turn it. And I was like, that's what it's about. It's giving the patient awareness of what their eyes are doing and then giving them awareness of when their eyes um, are aligned or when their eyes are acting in the appropriate manner and what that feels like and having, setting up conditions so that they could have their eyes feel um, in alignment or in proper focus or what have you consistently. And when I saw that, I said, oh yeah, this is for me all day long. Let's go. <laughs> he went from needing surgery to feeling in control of his life. He just, you know, made sure, okay, this is what I need to do to make mm -hmm. my eyes straight. And he didn't need that. That's awesome. I, I know. I know. I, and this is a seven-year-old. So it's not like, you know, um, he was 13 mm -hmm. and to do that. He was seven and he got it. And I was like, okay, this is what, I, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> All righty. So we're approaching on our last segment of today's episode. And this segment is dedicated to questions from listeners. Um, so the first question is, how do you stay up to date with changes in the field? So um, we have continuing education, but in my particular, that we have to do for the state of Tennessee. 
So we have to have 40 hours of continuing education. However, I'm um, certified in the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. I'm a fellow there. And so because of that, I have to get so many hours to maintain that fellowship. So maintaining that fellowship allows me to stay on top of so many different things that's coming in pediatrics and vision therapy. Um, they have a meeting every year with tons of awesome information and stuff. And um, that's one of my main ways I do it. Another way that is um, kind of awesome is that um, there is a journal called Optometry and Vision Performance that one of the editors, Dr. Mark Taub is at SEO and he sends out the journal um, regularly. So reading up on those articles and stuff keeps me um, abreast of what's going on and what people are thinking about in optometry or pediatric optometry and stuff. So those are my two main areas that I do, reading up on the journal articles that are pertinent to the field and um, going to the um, College of Optometrists and Vision Development um, meetings regularly to get the continuing education to help me to stay on top of things. Awesome. Um, next question here. Um, how do you handle kids who won't comply during an exam? Okay, so with kids, every kid is different and every three-year-old would not act the same. Every five-year-old won't act the same. But the key, one of the keys I found that helps me is trying to connect with the child, okay? Um, I, I go in assuming that they do not want to be there, okay? And I try to be as friendly and as welcoming as possible when, they, when I walk in the door without my white coat so that they know this, I'm an ally. And when there's techniques and things that they do not want to do, I try to think, ask about either, um, I don't know, a Marvel character that they like or um, a, um, what is it, um, shoot, My Little Pony or um, what have you, something that they can relate to. And if they can't relate to that, but the other thing I'll do is pull on the, um, are you a big girl or a big boy card? And what I mean by that is, if they want to be a big boy or a big girl, I demonstrate what I want to do on the parent and I give the parent all the accolades. I'm like, oh my gosh, did you see how mommy did? She was so awesome. Yay, let's, let's clap for mommy. You know, that sort of thing. And then I said, do you want to do it? Do you want to be a big boy or a big girl? And they'll be like, mm-hmm. So when I do that and they do it and they're still apprehensive, if I clap for them for the attempt, Oh, they all in. They're all in because they want to be like mommy and they want to have the, the accolades. Now, I will say there's some points where, or sometimes there's patients where they're tired and they're hungry and there's no accolade, there's no big boy or big girl that's going to turn them around. They need food or they need sleep. And in those instances, um, I either have to say, okay, hey, you did as much as you could at this time, let's pause. I'm gonna to talk to the mom or the dad to see if we need to postpone this appointment or if they need to go get a snack and come back and then they'll be okay. It's several different layers to that. But for the most part, if I can connect, then 
we're going to be golden. Awesome. Um, you mentioned um, some parts of this question earlier when you said that you really liked aspects of psychology um, and you know how to avoid burnout. So question straightforward, how do you avoid burnout um, during practice? Mm -hmm. So one thing I try to do is I try to stay self-aware. And I know that when I get to the point where I'm irritable and I don't want to do things that I usually love to do, I have to check myself and say, hey, I need a break. I need to pause. I need to pull away. One of the things I tried to do last semester was um, I tried to give myself um, a boundary of a, either a day or a half day on the weekend, I do nothing. And the reason why I did that was because in this heightened virtual um, environment, I felt I was being um, tugged a little bit more. And that's perfectly fine because it's, it was just different. And I was um, also a part of my new role, which is uh, diversity and inclusion at the college. So I had um, other responsibilities that I didn't have in previous years when I was teaching my lab that I felt um, that I was being, I had more um, demands on my time. And so I needed to carve out either a half day or a full day of nothing. And I'm gonna tell you a secret. My guilty pleasure is watching 90 Day Fiance. So, and you know, you can watch 90 Day Fiance for like five hours. <laughs> so I would just set aside and, and you know, 90 Day Fiance usually comes on a Sunday. So my husband wants to watch football and that's perfectly fine. But in the evening time, it's all, it's all that. So as long as I carved out that time, that was my ability to recharge. I also got into yoga to wusa and to um, meditate so that I could um, bring down anxiety when, I, when it happened and stuff. So the biggest thing I do to, to avoid burnout is to get proper rest, recharge, and give myself boundaries for when I am um, doing too much. Sounds good. Um, we're on our last question here. Um, and this question says, um, do you get to co-manage patients with other doctors? If so, what does that look like for you? Um, usually, since I'm in pediatrics, I co-manage patients either with strabismus surgery or with um, uh, retinal issues um, for some of my peds patients. Um, we have a ophthalmology group here in Memphis that is really good with um, um, co-managing the uh, retinal um, anomalies that occur. Um, I'll usually do the comprehensive exam and I will do some diagnostic testing, meaning um, some pathological diagnostic testing. And then I will further it out to the ophthalmology group and then what they will do is um, there's with that ophthalmology group there's an optometrist there that sees kids and so that doctor will follow up with that patient for that particular anomaly and then um, send me a report about what he found and then from there um, he'll either state that the patient can continue seeing me 
um, for annual exams, or he'll say they're following up with them for this particular issue or what have you. Okay, so it's very um, um, collaborative on the uh, co-management side of things. Awesome. Dr. Pepper, thank you so much again uh, for your time today. We enjoy having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate and I'm grateful for um, the time to be here. So that is all for this week's episode. Again, I hope you enjoyed it and found it insightful. Make sure to follow the podcast Instagram at keepin.it.od to stay up to date when episodes go live and also participate in polls that I put out randomly throughout the weeks. As always, if you or someone you know would like to be on the show, send an email to keepinitodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com with collaboration in the subject line, and I'll get back to you and we can work something out. And I will see you right back here next week with a brand new episode. And as always, we will be keeping it OD. Thank you, guys.